welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. We're going to be starting today's show discussing an activity that may be one of the finest nature experiences one can have. It's one I actually have done, but we just published a really great article about it on Fromers.com. It's called Seven Ways to Swim with Whale Sharks Responsibly. And to help me discuss that, we have Rena Nadar on the line. She's the author of that article. She also has a terrific website for families called LA Family Travel. Hey, Rena, welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. Hi, Pauline. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. Well, I got to ask, have you swum with whale sharks? Is that what gave you the idea to, to pitch this article to us? Yes. Actually, I have twice in La Paz. I was honored to swim with them, and it was such an incredible experience that I learned from our naturalist uh, guides that these whale sharks migrate all over the world. And it made me think, is it possible to somehow, coincidentally, of course, run into these whale sharks in other parts of the world? So I talked to many scientists to find out. Well, before we go any further, I think we have to define what a whale shark is because it's kind of an unusual creature and not all of our listeners probably know about the whale shark. So how do you explain what a whale shark is? So a whale shark is ginormous. It's about as big (laughs) as a school bus. So they um, are slow moving and very docile. So they appear to be possibly whales. They filter feed like whales. However, they're actually sharks. They're the largest shark in the world, and they're also the largest fish in the world. Right. And when you say filter feed, that means that they don't have big, ugly teeth that are chomping down on other creatures. They have filters in their mouth through which all kinds of things flow. And in your article, you spoke to a a scientist who made a new discovery about what these whale sharks are eating, right? So yes, one of one of the biggest threats to whale sharks was that they were getting caught in something called bifish. Well, it turns out they were doing the same thing. When they opened their mouths, which can be, I mean, between three to five feet, and they just wow. spend the whole day going through and gathering as much as much little teeny microscopic plant life as they can, they also managed to get some seaweed. And up until this study, scientists had believed that it was only the krill, the small fish um, that they were digesting. But it turns out, based on blood samples, that they're also, and skin samples, that they're also gathering seaweed. So now these creatures are also the, the world's largest omnivores. Right. Yeah. And so even though they're huge, they're massive and they're spotted, which gives them such an unusual aspect to just see these massive spotted creatures coming towards you. They're not at all dangerous. In fact, we're more dangerous to them than they are to us, which is why we put the word responsibly in the in the title of the article. What had been going wrong with the interaction between humans and whale sharks? 
Well, for instance, whale shark tourism brings millions of dollars into communities that otherwise wouldn't have um, any kind of options except possibly fishing. So Hmm. what they discovered is if they're able to live responsibly with these whale sharks in peace, then they're more likely to actually stick around. At one point in La Paz, it was terrible. People were just doing what they could and they were filling up their boats with tons of people and going out there and not um, behaving responsibly. Their ships were colliding with these gentle giants. Hmm. People were just crowding them to a point of where these poor animals couldn't eat in peace. So apparently they started to migrate away and that's not good for anybody. Right. And also uh, they were found to be endangered in 2016. So it's not just that they were moving, it's that a lot of them were being killed by tourist boats, right? Some of them were getting killed by tourist boats, but it was mainly the fishermen, the commercial fishermen that were going in and these these guys may not have even been their targets, but huh. the other fish that they were going for, they just happened to get into their nets. And this happens so often that the um, the uh, um, they had to declare them endangered and take actions to save them. Right. So you know it's a responsible tour operator. If they do what? If you're in a place where you can swim with whale sharks, what do you need to look for to make sure that that you're traveling with one of the good guys? So most areas actually have regulations, such as La Paz now, which was very impressive when I learned that. It was the citizens and scientists that enforced that. And Cancun, some places don't have regulations um, like... The uh, Maldives don't Hmm. have them, um, and the um, Galapagos, I believe, don't have them. However, oh no, sorry, the Mafia Island in Tanzania doesn't have them. However, the the fisher, the tour operators realized that it's so important to keep these guys safe that most of them follow the rules, and these rules were set out by an Australian science team that started to study them and everybody pretty much replicated those rules. And those rules are to minimize the number of boats allowed in the area. Um, Boats are only allowed to be with a whale shark for a couple of hours max, only five bodies in the water at a time. You need to stay away from them. And that's the number one rule. They can't, people can't touch them. They can't, they need to stay six feet away from their bodies and 10 feet away from their tails. But that also actually helps protect the swimmer because you never know with these whale sharks, as you know, you've swam with them. They can just change direction anytime. And then suddenly (laughs) where you thought you had all this space, you have this giant bus coming at you. (laughs) Well, actually, I accidentally broke the rules when I swam with the whale sharks because in order to, I did it from Cancun and in order to get to where the whale sharks were, it was an hour long boat ride and a very, very rough one uh, that the, the, 
boat was just pitching from side to side and I got seasick and I was throwing up and we were, we were there to do a video. <laughs> so I had to get in the water with them and they kept saying to me, you'll probably stop throwing up once you get in the water. It'll be much calmer in the water. I got in the water, I threw up and the whale sharks all came towards me to eat what I had thrown up. And so I accidentally touched them and I accidentally fed them, which are the two no-nos. Um, it was still a, a, an incredible experience, although I was so sick on that trip just because of how rough uh, the seas were. Um, so I don't, don't follow my example. I did it all wrong. <laughs> but uh, so Cancun is one of the places that, you, that they do it. And there are different things, different populations of whale sharks, depending on where you go, as you discovered in your article. Like there's one area where it's mostly female whale sharks. So they think that that's where the whale sharks may go to give birth, right? Yes. Although scientists still look at these amazing creatures as as mystery beings. They've not been able to document officially um, where they're mating or where they give birth, but they estimate that it possibly could be the Galapagos Islands because 98% of the whale sharks that arrived there are female. Hmm. So there have been attempts at doing ultrasounds and blood draws, believe it or not, but they were unable to confirm that they were pregnant. Huh. So that's still a mystery. Um, right. There are some fishermen that claim to have seen the process, but hmm. nothing, nothing official. Well, and, and uh, you talk about the reproductive system of whale sharks, which is based on just one dead pregnant whale shark that was found, I think, in 1995. And it's absolutely fascinating what goes on inside a whale shark's uterus. Can, can you talk about what they found inside this dead whale shark? So it was incredible. This Taiwanese fisherman pulled up this um, unfortunately, deceased whale shark, female pregnant whale shark, and she had over 300 fetuses inside of her in various stages of gestation. And they were able to ascertain that it was the same father that was the daddy of all these babies. And wow. they were, because they're in various, various stages of gestation, they realized that this, uh, the whale sharks were able to selectively use the sperm and release it as as they wanted. I mean, wow. Huh. <laughs> so the, the body of the whale shark somehow was dividing up the sperm and giving it to different eggs. And well, I don't know. I don't know. I, I guess that's also part of the mystery, how, how exactly this process plays out. Uh, but wow. Uh, they also, I had no idea when you're swimming with a whale shark, you may be swimming with a whale shark who's double or triple your age. They, they live a long time. Yes, they live a long time. They average between 80 and 130 years. Hmm. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And it was interesting to me too. One of the places you can go to swim with them 
is St. Helena, uh, which is famous for another reason. Why is St. Helena a famous island? Well, back in the old days, Napoleon was exiled to St. Helena, and that is where he spent out the remaining years of his life. Yeah. Yeah, it was the first time I've heard anybody talking about tourism to St. Helena. I had no idea what you'd go to see except maybe Napoleon's house there. So fascinating that it's a whale shark destination too. Well, it's a wonderful article. It's on fromers.com. Thank you so much, Rena, for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure speaking with you, Pauline. Our next guest is an old friend of the Fromer Travel Show. He is Don George, travel writer, par extraordinaire, and he is the editor of a pretty major new anthology that just came out. It's called The Best of Wanderlust, Tales of Wonder and Connection. Hey, Don, welcome back to the Fromer Travel Show. Hello, Pauline. It's wonderful to be back. Thank you for inviting me. Well, my pleasure. And wow, you got an A-list uh, group <laughs> of writers to to write for you in this in this anthology. Pico Iyer, Isabel Allende, Tim Cahill, Stan, Stanley Stewart, Tahir Shah. Uh, tell us about how the book came about. Well, uh, how the anthology came about, right. I should say. Uh, this is the the 40th anniversary of Geographic Expeditions, which is an adventure travel company. Uh, based in San Francisco. And I edit the blog for them, which is called Wanderlust. And uh, as we were approaching the 40th anniversary, we were talking about different ways to celebrate and commemorate. And the idea came up, what, a, what about if we published a beautiful book you know, celebrating our blog in addition to our 40 years of doing adventure travel around the world? What if we collected um, some stories that just kind of reflected our spirit of why we travel the world, what we enjoy about it, um, and then how we celebrate it in our in our blog. So I put together 15 stories from writers that, that I love and have worked with in the past. And each one is kind of a different celebration of that facet of adventure where you go out into the world, you experience things you weren't expecting to experience. Sometimes things go wrong, but ultimately everything ends up going right and you learn some really precious, enduring lessons and really, that's what Geographic Expeditions has been about for 40 years, is sharing these precious lessons and celebrations of the world. And so each one of these stories is a little piece of that, that Geographic Expeditions puzzle. And um, right. for me as the editor, it's just been a real thrill to gather all these great stories and uh, put them all together so that people can read through the book and go, oh, yeah, I remember my own adventure in this place, or I, I've never been to... Uh, Hmm. Tibet. I'd love to go there. And so um, it's meant to inspire people both ideally to travel with geographic expeditions, but also um, just to remember the wonder and importance of travel for all of us. As, as you well yeah. know, Pauline, I mean, travel is life changing and life transforming. And we just want people to get out there and see the world. And, and this book is part of that effort. Well, I want to ask you about some of the specific stories, because I know Tim Cahill has made a career of things going wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right. He, he, he kind of, he's, it's he's one of the founders of Outside Magazine, and yet he 
bumbles in the <laughs> wilderness right. often and in the most delightful, <laughs> charming way. Uh, so how did he bumble in his story? I'm just assuming that it must be about that. Well, it's, it's a wonderful story. I asked him to write about his favorite place in the world. And he said, oh, Don, I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. And <laughs> and I said, come on, Tim. And, and finally, he said, OK, since it's you, I'm going to tell you what my favorite place in the world is. So he, he writes about Patagonia, which oh. for him is just the place where he feels most at home. And it was re it's really fascinating to read what it is about Patagonia that makes him feel at, at home. I mean, and, and he is it Chilean Patagonia or Argentinian or both? Uh, both, I would say both. Okay. And it's really the wide open spaces and the uh, sort of remote, friendly people. And by the end, I mean, the, the people who are very remote from each other, and yet when you encounter them, they're very friendly and very warm and welcoming. And by the end, he gets to the realization that it's actually a lot like his own home in Montana and, huh. and how... Um, that's maybe why he feels so at home there, the, the beauty of the nature, the, the wilderness that calls out to him, and yet the really warm and welcoming people. And so he kind of comes to this realization that he has two homes in a way. There's the home he loves, loves with his heart entirely, but then there's also Patagonia, which is a place that he just finds himself feeling absolutely comfortable and this is this is where I belong kind of feeling. So yeah. he, really, he really brings out the wonders of Patagonia uh, it's a it's a lovely lovely piece, and it's you know Tim writing it at his finest, so it's yeah. it's a great piece. I I don't know what prompts me to want to share this, but I think I had one of the best worst vacations of my life in <laughs> Patagonia because uh, I went with my two daughters uh, and we I put together this trek of the famous W Trail where yeah. you see glaciers and you see extraordinarily jagged peaks and you walk from hostel to hostel meeting people from all over the world mm -hmm. except my younger daughter at the time was I think she was 16 no no she was probably my older one must have been 19 or 18 so she was 15 so she was at the height of her pain in the acidness and uh, she decided <laughs> she decided that she hated hiking. Oh, no. And so every day we had to hike about 10 miles, 12 miles, sometimes mm. 15. And she decided she just wanted to get it over with as quickly as possible and that she would run <laughs> on these trails. No. And we didn't want to be apart from one another. So we all had to run oh, to try and keep gosh. up with her. And it, it, it just was... It was a good, a lot of good exercise, I guess but so. I wanted to kill her. <laughs> so I, I saw the beauty of Patagonia in a very fast clip. Yeah, really, really. Yeah. So you should have traveled with GOX because they could have sent someone to run with her. And then you could uh, have walked. Yeah, yeah. No, oh my God, was, that sounds... That was a nutty one. That sounds well, tell nutty, us about truly. Isabel Allende, one of my favorite authors. What did she write for you? Uh, this is such an amazing piece. Um, she's, she's traveling through India and... Um, along the way they're seeing all these wonders of India and at one point they stop and there's some women sort of a group of women under a tree in the distance and they stop and they go over and they they talk to the women a little bit and they have sort of a nice encounter and then as they're getting ready to leave the the woman has a one of the women has sort of a bundle in her arms and uh and she just extends that bundle to to Isabel and she says without knowing any 
English. She just says, here, take this, you know, and yeah. Isabel takes it thinking, oh, this is a, a gift. How, how wonderful, how kind. And, and, and she starts to walk away. And then the driver guide who's with them comes running up and grabs the bundle out of Isabel's hands and thrusts it back at the woman and says, you, know, you take this, you take this, you take this and sort of forces it into her hands, grabs Isabel and says, let's go back to the Jeep right away. And they turn and they sort of hustle back to the Jeep. And Isabel said, what was that all about? And he says, she was handing you her baby. <gasps> oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah. She wanted you to take her baby to give it a better life. Oh, and, oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing that Isabel didn't realize she was holding a baby. Well, I guess it was wrapped in such a way. It was such a tiny, tiny, tiny. Right. It was wrapped in such a way. And it was such a tiny parcel, kind of, that Isabel had no idea it was a baby. She just didn't understand right. that. And as Isabel oh says in, in her story, it's an incredibly moving story, but she, she thought about that more and more and she decided to start a foundation. That that was the, the moment mm. that inspired her to start a foundation to help women around the world. And uh, she said she she's haunted by it to this day. Yeah. Uh, and just the, the notion that that this happens. This is one of the things you encounter when you travel is this kind of poverty and despair. And what can we do to help make the world a better place? So she started yeah. her foundation, but it's an incredibly moving story. We're at, all right. Well, that's an, a very moving one. Were any of the stories laugh out loud funny? What, what <laughs> yeah. was, who, who gave you a, a good funny one? So there's two in particular, but I want to tell you Jeff Greenwald's story because it's, uh, it's called it, uh, the, the Abominable Trekker, it's called. <laughs> <laughs> and he's way out in the wilderness, you know, way out in the wilderness on, on the side of a mountain. Um, as, as happens in those circumstances, he meets a family, he's invited into the family's home. Um, everybody's sitting down, they're having a great time talking, and, and suddenly this incredible feast materializes it's brought out of the kitchen and placed in in front of him and everyone's going to um, share in the feast but but because he's the honored guest he's he's the first person um to partake of the feast and everybody's gathered around in the living room and he's about to partake in the feast and he's so excited and exhilarated and just so happy and honored that he kind of leaps to his feet when he leaps to his feet, he upsets the table that all of the food is on. It, oh, no. fly, it flies into the air. The food just <laughs> scatters everywhere, all around the hut. And he just, oh my, said, oh my, he just wanted to die in that moment. He just said, I, I, I have disgraced myself. I'm going to leave here and never come back. And he walks out and, and the sort of guide trekking partner who's with him run, runs after him and and Jeff says, what can I do? I feel awful. I feel terrible. And the guide says, it's okay. It's okay. Come back. And the, uh, about a few minutes, 15 minutes later, everything's reassembled. They sit wow. down. The father rises to his feet and says something to the effect of, we are all going to enjoy a beautiful dinner together now. We're so honored to have our guest with us. And they just proceed, and everybody starts eating at the same time. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. So if people want to read these stories themselves, how do they get them? Uh, they should go to the GOX website. It's G-E-O-E-X dot com. And uh, just go to the blog, and there should be a little pop-up that appears when you go to the blog that says, if, would you like to 
read a, would you like to get a free copy? It's a free copy okay. of the book. If that Very somehow nice. doesn't happen, just put uh, Best of Wanderlust into the search field and, and that will take you right to the link for the, the, the book. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited and exhilarated to have this book out in the world and it just celebrates travel, which has been, you know, the, the, my, my life revolves around travel. It's my religion, as I've told you in the past. And, <laughs> yes, uh, yes. And this is sort of a celebration of that religion and why we do it and, and what, what are the lessons and riches that we get from venturing out yeah. into the world. Well, before we go, I want to hear, I know that you have been venturing out into the world. Yes. Uh, you're a Japan expert, and Japan was the country that probably opened up uh, the latest of almost all of the major touristic company, countries uh, on the planet. Um, how was it being in Japan post-pandemic, or not, I guess we can't say post-pandemic, right. but after the po pandemic lockdowns. Yeah. Oh my God, Pauline, it was amazing. <laughs> it was so <laughs> great. I, I I was on the edge of my seat for months and months and months and months and months waiting for Japan to open up. And finally it did. And I actually took a group of travelers for GOX to an area of Japan that I hadn't really been to in in, in depth in about 20 years and we got oh. there and it was just incredible we were in in most cases so this is the the western part of the main island which is honshu the western part of honshu along the japan sea coast and not that many people go there and we were just treated like royalty everywhere we went mm -hmm. most people were saying you're the first foreigners we've seen in three years Wow. And um, so I felt like we were literally opening up the country and it was incredibly exhilarating when people were so happy and kind and just thrilled to have people from the outer world back again. And yeah. um, so many treasures to see. I was just reminded all over again why I love Japan. I mean, just the kindness of the people, the, the consideration, the natural beauty, the cultural well, what do you see and do in this area? And it doesn't have a is what is the prefecture you were in? Well, there's a couple of prefectures, but we were in the main town is Matsue, uh, which is a big castle town. And, and mm. that's a really beautiful town. There's a lovely pottery making village called Hagi. Uh, so we sort of traced a route from Hagi to Matsue. And it's actually called a lot of it's called Kyoto Prefecture. Because ah, okay. Kyoto is is part of this prefecture, but Kyoto is is way down south and east. Uh, so we were up in the northwest part of Kyoto Prefecture, which is very rugged and beautiful. And uh, we saw castle towns, we saw shrines. We stayed in this one village that was the center of mining around the world um, two hundred years ago, and then everything sort of dried up. But there's it's a beautiful little village there. We stayed in a restored samurai residence that was incredibly oh. beautiful. Um, Wait, before you leave that, what, <laughs> a, a samurai residence? Uh, are there swords everywhere? I'm assuming there are tatami mats on the right. floor and futons. But how does it differ from, say, a, an average ryokan? Uh, which is a traditional Japanese inn. Right. So whereas in a traditional Japanese inn, you would have a lot of rooms, each one meant to be slept in. Um, uh -huh. This was really a house. So you had a big kitchen. Uh, you had sort of a, a, a meeting room. You had a, a room where things would be sold. Uh, uh -huh. You had... so. 
it was originally not designed for lots and lots of visitors to come and stay, but they've converted the different rooms into places where you can stay. So it's, it's really fun because you get a sense of what it was like to live in that home 200 years ago. Um, but you also have now very comfortable accommodations, all tatami, uh, beautiful, beautifully restored. Uh, the roof is beautiful. The accoutrements inside are beautiful lacquerware and beautiful bowls. And it's mm. a very sustainably minded uh, group that's taken it over now. So all of the food is grown locally. The, de- wow. the delightful chef lived right down the road and he showed us his garden one day. We went for a little walk and he said, this is my home. This is my garden. You know, the food you're going wow. to eat tomorrow is is growing right here right now. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a really exhilarating experience and, and both an immersion in the past and kind of an immersion in the present too. So reimagining how can rural Japan reinvent itself and, right. and be economically feasible. And it was very exciting. Did you spend any time in the big cities? I mean, you obviously flew into Tokyo. Uh, was there any time there or did you go directly into the rur- we, into rural Japan? We went directly into rural Japan. The, huh. the The idea behind this trip was really to explore the places that people don't go. And huh. um, that was fun. I, I do have a trip actually in about 10 days. I'm leaving for Japan. Oh boy. Wow. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> and, and this trip goes starts out in Kyoto, which is my one of my two favorite cities in the world. Yeah. And um, so we spend three, four days in Kyoto on this trip. And I love that because we get to see the Kyoto that people don't see. We, we wander mm. into back alleys and little tiny temples and we meet artisans and craftsmen. And it's really fun because even Kyoto, anybody can go to Kyoto and have a great experience. But yes. when you sort of know where to go and who to talk to and and, and, and who to eat with and where to eat, it, it becomes an even more rich, wonderful behind-the-scenes yeah. experience. And so well, I'm the excited. thing about Kyoto is, is it's very touristy. It uh, is. It, you know, I mean, they have shops where you can buy clothing to dress up like a traditional <laughs> exactly. yeah, or to rent. You, you rent clothes just to I, take photos at the temple right. in in kimonos, and uh-huh. it's, uh, which is fun. Uh, but sometimes it can be a little much. So it's it's mm-hmm. great that you're showing people the other side of the city, which, yes, it's one of my favorites, too. What a yeah. gorgeous, incredible place. It, it is. And it, it has come back in a big way. I was there in the fall on my own when, when these GOX trips stopped. I went to Kyoto because I love it so much. It was really, really bustling with tourists. It, it, it mm. had come back big time. But I'm excited to be there when the cherry blossoms are blooming. And I know there'll be a million tourists, but I also know where there are no tourists and we can see the cherry blossoms. So I'm really, really excited about that. Yeah. Well, that sounds great. If people want to travel with you, they, I guess, go to GOX again. Correct. GOX.com. Yeah, correct. Right. I would love to have any, any of your listeners. I would love to take and show my Japan. And I don't want to turn this totally into a commercial, but right. <laughs> if you want to be a travel writer, if you're interested in learning about travel writing and photography, uh, Don and I and uh, some amazing teachers beyond us uh, will be teaching at Book Passage this summer uh, in August, right? Do, do you yes. have the dates at your fingertips? I do. I write at my fingertips, August 10 to 13. 
August 10 to 13. So yeah. that's in Corte Madera, California, which is right outside San Francisco. And where do people go if they want to learn more about that? Um, go to bookpassage.com, B-O-O-K-P-A-S-S-A-G-E.com. And the very exciting news, Pauline, is that two of, I think, our favorite people, Pico Iyer and Andrew McCarthy, are, oh, both, wow. <laughs> are both going to be at the conference this summer. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's going to be amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Pico oh, and Andrew and Pauline. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I've, I've recommended the conference to many people over the years and every single one of them that I've done so said, came out of it saying, I felt like I found my home as a writer or home as a photographer yeah. that suddenly, you know, being a travel writer or photographer is a very uh, singular job. You, you're, you're out there on your own a lot and people really find their community and find people they can bounce ideas off of and, and get real feedback from yeah. uh, when they go to this conference. Yeah. It's, a, it's a great conference. Absolutely. Pauline, if I can add one more little self-advertisement, if you, yes. if, if, if one cannot make it to book passage in August for the conference, I'm actually leading two travel writing workshops in Paris in July. And if oh, anybody ooh, wants, wow! <laughs> if anyone wants to join me for a six-day travel writing workshop in Paris in July, um, they can just contact me, and I'll give them all the information. <laughs> but great, okay. Corte well, Madeira or Paris? Contact you? Oh, um, well, if they could just email me, it's don.george at sbcglobal.net. So just right. email is the best, don.george at sbcglobal.net. Yes, and, and now I have to add one thing. Please, <laughs> I will be appearing at the uh, Women's Travel Festival. Oh, yeah. So Don will not be there. Don is not allowed in. <laughs> but <laughs> so Women's Travel Festival in New York City uh, next weekend. So uh, that's the very first weekend in March. It's always an amazing event. This is the tenth anniversary of it. I will be there. Samantha Brown will be there. A lot of other incredible uh, women writers, women influencers, and the like. Uh, so, so please come join us. And I'm going to say goodbye now because we've we've just let this gone on gone on too long. <laughs> uh, well, but Don, so great to speak with you. Thanks, Pauline. It's wonderful talking with you as always. And thank you all for listening. To those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. See you next week.